2006, November 21st. Today is Lecture 40, the Saturn System, which will begin in just a moment. So in today's theme will be more cold, frozen bits of the solar system. Um, yesterday we talked about the Jupiter moon system, and we saw that quite to our surprise, some of those moons showed a surprising degree of geologic activity. They are, in fact, interesting little solar systems in miniature, and they recapitulate a lot of the structures we see in the larger solar system, but in miniature growing around Jupiter. And in fact, we can learn quite a bit about things like solar system formation models, because right there in the solar system, we have a little subsystem, if you will, that we can test some of these ideas in. This is also somewhat true with the Saturn system. The other large Jovian planet has also a very, very complex system around it. The system includes not only moons, but now very, very bright rings. Of course, this makes what makes Saturn the most distinguishable planet around. In fact, if you asked any school kid to draw a planet, they'll always draw you Saturn for some reason. They always like to draw something about that ring. There's really people like. Saturn is a fairly complex system of 56 moons and bright rings. It only has one giant moon, whereas we saw four around Jupiter, there's only one around Saturn, and that's the somewhat appropriately named Titan. The reason for the name Titan, of course, is because Saturn is a, a basically a Romanization of Kronos, who was the, uh, one, of the, one of the original gods of Greek mythology, who had a number of children who were basically giants, the, the Titans. And so that was the name given to this giant moon. It was discovered by, by Christian Huygens in, in the 17th century. In addition to that one giant moon, there are 55 smaller moons, and these are mostly icy in composition. They're basically ice rock um, comp, comp, composites. Now, it turns out that these roughly divide into two groups, and the division line is when their diameters are above 300 kilometers, the gravity forces inside these objects can actually shape them into spheres. And so we'll see that there's going to be a mix among the 55 smaller satellites of the big round moons. They're not big enough to be giant moons. They barely get over 1,000 kilometers. To be a giant moon, you've got to be over about 3,000 kilometers. But lower, smaller than 300 kilometers in size, they get to be kind of irregular pockmarked things, sort of like what we saw around, around Jupiter. Now, two of these moons actually... Um, Actually, a lot of these moons are very interesting, but two of them in particular I want to focus on today. One of them is quite a surprise, the moon Enceladus. It's one of those small, round moons over 300 kilometers, about 500 kilometers in diameter. It turns out to have a very geologically young surface, but what has been repaving its surface is not silicate volcanoes like on Io, but ice volcanoes or ice fountains or geysers that are actually repaving large sections of the surface and also building a brand new ring around the Saturnian system. Titan is perhaps the most interesting of the moons around here. Titan is the second largest moon in the solar system, and it is distinguished from all other moons in the solar system by having a very thick nitrogen-methane atmosphere. It's the only moon with a heavy atmosphere anywhere in the solar system. And in fact, recently, in the last few months, there have been compelling discoveries from the Cassini orbiter that there may, in fact, be lakes of liquid methane on the surface of, of Titan. So we'll say something about that. And at the very end, as a teaser for Wednesday's lecture, there really will be a lecture tomorrow, even though it is the day before Thanksgiving. You got Friday off. Give me a break. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the rings of Saturn and what they are. Essentially, they are large it's a large collection of orbiting chunks of ice and rock ranging from sort of, you know, little tiny pea grains up to the size of your house, but not much bigger than that. And this will then become a lead-in to, to a general discussion of planetary rings around all four of the Jovian planets. Well, just to give a quick overview of the moon system of Saturn, Saturn by current count has 56 moons. There's a, a fellow named um, 
Scott Shepard at the University of Hawaii, who has been engaged doing basically most of the work. Sort of his his job these days is to search for moons of the Jovian planets, and he's been uh, undertaking a very successful search. And so a lot of the moons that have been added in the last decade have been added by Scott and his collaborators. There's one giant moon, Titan, which orbits fairly far out. And then 55 smaller moons that range in size currently from between 20 and about 1,500 kilometers in diameter. Those larger than 300 kilometers are spherical in shape. Those smaller than 300 kilometers are irregular in shape. Now, so far we know a little bit about the density of a lot of these, mostly because of spacecraft images that have allowed us to get really good data on their sizes and masses. The densities range anywhere from 0.3 to 1.5 grams per cc. Okay, remember, one gram per cc is the density of liquid water on the surface of the Earth. So some of these things are, in fact, very clearly rock-ice mixtures, right? Rock is a density of about three grams per cc. So you get kind of a one-to-one -one rock-ice mixture. You kind of get to the kind of one-and-a-half, two grams per cc range. More interesting, however, is 0.3 grams per cc. In order to get that kind of density with ice, it's actually got to be porous. It's actually got to have holes and cavities in it. And so very likely when you get down, and, and these numbers down here are pretty uncertain. These are real lightweight objects. This is starting to get down to the kinds of densities we see in comet nuclei. And so one idea is that some of these things are in fact captured comet nuclei. And it's consistent with the fact that they're on these highly irregular and sometimes retrograde orbits. They're very clearly cases of gravitational capture. Now, all of them, with only really two clear exceptions, have really ancient, heavily cratered surfaces among the irregular moons. But there are two primary exceptions. Enceladus, which has younger ice terrain, and Titan, which has active weather and much more active geologic processes going on, as we'll see here in a moment. But all the rest really are largely unaltered, except for certain details, since their formation. Now, we do see a lot of strange tectonic features on some of the larger spherical moons, as we'll see in a moment. But that seems to be related to the kinds of shrinkage tectonism, that kind of vertical tectonism of cracking and faulting that we've already seen on a lot of other planets. So here's a little sort of rogues gallery of irregular little moons. Um, the, the Cassini spacecraft has been orbiting the, the planet now for about two years. And it's got a long, fairly five, six year mission, hopefully extended if things survive pretty well. And so we've been getting just these tremendous number of beautiful high resolution pictures of the irregular moons that before were just moving spots. So for example, you, you can see what I mean by the word irregular. You get Epimetheus, which is just really beat up and heavily cratered. Pandora looks like the kind of potato you would pass by in the market. It's kind of odd. It's got kind of a brownish surface. Janus here is heavily cratered, but it's covered with relatively fresh ice. And the reason is that Janus actually moves around in the ring plane, and so it slowly sweeps up and actually picks up fresh ice from the ring particles, not from interior. Uh, Prometheus is another one of those bright ring moons. This is Helene. In fact, it was kind of viewed from the night side. That's why it looks kind of funny. But again, you can see it's kind of irregular and lumpy, Calypso and Telesto. These are just a, a smattering of examples. There are lots of these moons. These are kind of the best of the current gallery of irregular moons from, uh, from, from the Cassini spacecraft. The large moons, the ones that are close to but not quite spherical all, for all of them, are going to have, well, defined by large here, means diameters larger or the largest direction larger than about 200 kilometers. So these are pretty, pretty good sized objects. The rest of them are a lot smaller, less than 100 kilometers. So there's a big division at 200 kilometers. Once you get below 100 kilometers or so, you're really getting into sort of captured comet nuclei or 
unformed junk, un undifferentiated junk. But here, for the most part, above 200 kilometers, you get differentiated or partially differentiated objects. The largest, of course, of these is Titan, which really stands out in size. And then there's four fairly large moons, Dione, Iapetus, Rhea, and Tethys. Two smaller moons, Mimas and Enceladus. All of these are over 300 kilometers in diameter. And then you drop below 300 kilometers, and you get two large irregular moons, Phoebe, which looks kind of round in this picture, but that's only because that's that particular view, and Hyperion, which is the other large irregular satellite of uh, Saturn. Here are the four large spherical moons. These are in order, Rhea, Iapetus, Dione, and Tethys. You can, um, I show them here, um, again, properly scaled to their sizes. So Rhea, the biggest one, is about 1,500 kilometers. Tethys rings in at just 60 kilometers over 1,000. That's kind of a nice dividing line for kind of a mid-sized moon is about 1,000 kilometers in diameter. The first thing to notice about these things is that all of them have extremely heavily cratered ancient surfaces. Every single one of these has lots and lots of craters. In many cases, the craters are strongly overlapping. Sometimes you can see shadows of some really big craters. Look up here, for example, on Rhea. You can see a shadow of two really large craters. Look at the diameter of that crater compared to the diameter of the entire moon. That is a really big impact. Sometime in its past, its gravity has simply filled it back in. Tethys down here. Dione more so has this sort of grooved, rattly-looking terrain on it. So there's definitely been some tectonism down here, but it's probably been driven primarily by cooling. And there's Tethys. I'm sorry, Iapetus. I mean, Iapetus is weird for two reasons. One is, it was called for a while the yin-yang moon, because it's got a really dark terrain and really bright terrain. Now, there are other pictures that show this bright and dark pattern better, but Iapetus has tremendous changes in bright and dark as it rotates. It's really odd. This is really fairly fresh ice on top of a very, very dark ancient um, surface. You can see a large impact basin here and an even bigger one kind of peeking over the limb here. But look at this girdle around here. In fact, Iapetus almost looks kind of like a walnut. It's really odd looking. There's a lot of ideas as to what this might be, and there's going to be some more passes around Iapetus over the next few years, but one of the more radical ideas I've heard is, in fact, Iapetus had such a large impact that it basically disrupted the moon early on, broke it in half, and the two half is, halves squashed back together. And that's what gives you the rim here. The other possibility is the rim is, in fact, uh, focusing of various seismic waves due to some very, very heavy impact pummeling. So people really don't know what this is all about, but it's... Uh, it really stands out. I mean, this moon is big enough to be circular by its own shape, but you can see there's some really amazing terrain relief on this thing. So these things have had a very interesting history overall. In fact, some of them are very surprising, and they're going to be subjects of, of subsequent work. Like, you know, no one really understands what these bright streaks are going on here on Dione, and certainly they have been studied in some detail. Now, here's two of the smaller spherical moons, Mimas, about 397 kilometers, and Enceladus, which is just a shade under 500. Um, again, Mimas is heavily cratered, and there's one gigantic crater named Herschel here. Uh, John Herschel was the man who discovered Mimas. Um, when we first saw the pictures of Mimas come through from Voyager 2, when I was an undergraduate at Caltech, they had a, a big theater called the Beckman Auditorium, and they had a big projection TV set up, and you could see the live pictures coming down. And when the picture came down of Mimas that looked something like this, a whole room full of Caltech students suddenly stopped, looked up, and went, it's the Death Star. Uh, in fact, this is often referred to as the Death Star moon. It kind of looks like that. Um, 
Enceladus was kind of a surprise. Uh, the Voyager spacecraft only made fairly distant passes around Enceladus. Enceladus had already been fairly famous for a long time because it was very bright and shiny. It obviously had a lot of very fresh ice on it. But what was a real surprise when um, the Cassini spacecraft made a number of very close passes. In fact, one of the passes is going to be within a few um, tens of kilometers of the surface. It's going to make a real surface skim um, coming up here pretty soon in the next couple of years, was this highly uncratered, very young terrain. Enceladus has actually had some interesting geologic activity in its past. We'll say that more about that in a moment. The two smaller moons, outer Phoebe, is about 240 kilometers. This was the first high-resolution picture ever returned by Cassini of one of the moons. It's a spectacularly cratered surface. The resolution of the Cassini cameras and some of the closer passes, you can actually see individual boulders on the surface of this moon. It's really quite remarkable. This is an extremely ancient, very dark, heavily, heavily beaten-up object. And then there's Hyperion. <laughs> this is weird. It's uh, 266 kilometers at its largest extent. This moon has just simply been pummeled. You can see that it's got big overlapping craters. Here's, a, here's some kind of big crater, but even that crater has been pummeled. So you get craters inside of craters inside of... This thing's just been beaten up. This is really an amazing amount of terrain, but you can see the sort of light and dark here. This is mostly an icy moon for the most part. But it happens to be in a place where there's just an amazing amount of debris that it has swept up and gotten beaten up with over its history. And so Hyperion is, and Hyperion's kind of funny too. Is that the other thing is it's kind of very oblong. It's got one of the largest axis ratios in terms of smallest to largest axis of any of the large irregular moons. I mean, for something over you know, 200 kilometers, that's a lot. This thing tumbles end over end and around in very chaotic ways as it interacts with the gravity of all the stuff around it. So Dynamis, even though Hyperion is like really cool to look at, um, Dynamicists just love this thing because it's a test of certain um, ideas of what's known as the physics of chaos, basically the interchange of energy among various components in an orbital spinning system. And so they just love this moon because it just, it just does this crazy dance around, around um, Saturn. It just... It does this sort of funny tumble, and it switches axes as to which is the primary rotation axis. It's a really crazy place. All right, let's get serious now and talk about one of the moons that's really been a big surprise, is Celadus. It was known for a long time, as I said, to be the brightest body in the solar system. We measured the brightness. I haven't gone into quantitative detail in this class yet because it's kind of, kind of hard to. It's, there's not really much use for it. But there is a way that you can quantify how bright and shiny a surface is. You may run into the word albedo. There's two very different ways to define albedo. Um, we, um, sort of unimportant for us to go into them here. But basically what albedo is, it's a measure to a first approximation of the amount of light reflected to the amount of light that's hitting it. So for example, a mirror would have an albedo of 100% or an albedo of 1.0, whereas a perfect black body would essentially have an albedo of zero. And that's the scale for it. Most objects have fairly low albedos. A typical asteroid has got an albedo of about 0.15, 0.12. A typical icy outer moon is kind of also 0.5, 0.05. They're really pretty dark things. This thing's got an albedo up around 80%. <laughs> this thing is extremely bright and shiny. And that was the first hint that something really interesting must be going on in Enceladus because it's really hard to keep ices bright and shiny unless you are continually renewing them. 
The ring particles are bright and shiny because they're rubbing against each other all the time, and so their surfaces are always kept bright and shiny. But a moon usually accumulates carbonaceous crap on its surface very quickly. We saw that yesterday, for example, on Ganymede and Callisto, where they had these dark, varnished, tarnished surfaces, and it was only where you had fresh meteor impacts that you saw this white, fresh ice coming up from below. And certainly, almost all the moons that I've shown before are that same way. They're very dark objects. You know, remember, this is Saturn's 10 astronomical units out. It's getting 1% of the sunlight the Earth gets. So these places are really dark. The cameras have got to really crank up the exposure to get any light out there because it's so faint. And all those moons are really actually rather dark, but not Enceladus. Enceladus is just bright and shiny as hell. And the reason for that is that there's a lot of fresh, clean ice on the surface. Furthermore, it's pretty clear that some of this surface is brand new. Notice the lower southern half of the planet, of the planet, the moon here, is virtually uncratered. And there are these large um, crack fissure structures. They're referred to as tiger stripes by some of the geologists who study it. Some of them are very long, but all of them are still fairly young terrain. Now, the coloration here, you might pick up a slight shade of blue. That actually is a little bit of computer enhancement, but it's not a complete accident because these cracks actually play an important role. This is where liquid water is actually spraying out from the interior. This moon is very tiny. It doesn't have much gravity, but there is just enough gravity that's got a very thin water vapor atmosphere and fresh ices are being fed by fountains that come spraying up out of these fissures. And that certainly was the idea. Now, the part of it is where does the heat come from? And the answer turns out to be tidal heating where tidal heating will melt the water below the surface and it comes out. Now, you look at this picture and you say, okay, sure, that's a nice idea. How do you test it? Well, the way you test it is you wait until the spacecraft comes around and interposes itself where the moon is now between you and the sun. And you shoot sunlight, you shoot the moon from the nighttime side with sunlight shining through. Okay, now here's just a close-up of the surface before we get to that little teaser there. You can see a lot of fissures and cracks on the surface. You can see a lot of old craters, but those craters have been largely filled in as if something has put a fresh layer of snow on top of them. This looks like nothing more than a field after a snow, fresh snowfall. You can sort of see the outlines of the stuff below, but there's like a blanket of snow and ice on it. And you can see how these cracks all cross over the craters. The cracks are younger than the older craters below. And you photograph it from the night side. And there are what we now refer to as the fountains of Enceladus. We have now found a second geologically active moon active as we're watching it. This is a beautiful photograph taken from the night side. Sunlight scattering through shows us these bright fountains, which in fact are fountaining material off the planet entirely, as well as repaving the surrounding surface. Each one of these bright points here, where you can see is the apex of the fountain, corresponds to one of those bright blue tiger stripes that we saw in the front side picture. So those aren't ancient cracks like we saw in Europa. These are active fountains in the present day. So what's going on here? What's going on is a different kind of volcanism than we've ever encountered before in this class. Earlier, volcanism has been liquid rock, either iron and silicate magmas on the earth or molten silicates and molten sulfur, as in the case of tidally heated Io yesterday. But now we're going to get something called cryovolcanism. Cryo basically is one of the words for ice. It's ice volcanoes. Now it turns out that Enceladus is going to be one of three objects in the solar system that's going to have currently active surfaces. 
and I see a misprint here, that should be Triton. Triton and Titan are too close to each other in my brain. It's been a bad week. So it would be Io around Jupiter and Triton around Neptune. Is that correct in your notes? Triton? Yeah, so I just mistyped it when I was typing up. Sorry about that. Ignore that. Now, what powers this activity? This moon is only 500 kilometers in diameter. It should long since have cooled off and gone geologically dead. In fact, all the other large moons, with the exception of Titan in the Saturn system, are geologically dead in the current day. And the reason is tidal heating. Once again, we see the role of tides to cause additional sources of heating in the presence of strong tidal gravitational fields. In this case, the tidal heating the best candidate for what's going on there is that Enceladus orbits in a 2 to 1 orbital resonance with an outer moon, Dione, whereas in, where Enceladus completes two orbits for every exact one orbit of Dione. Dione is one of those big, bigger than a thousand kilometer in diameter moons of, of, of Saturn. It's going to have a fairly strong tidal influence on Enceladus. And so what happens is Enceladus is getting rhythmically squeezed and squashed Every orbit it goes around, it encounters, it encounters basically Dione twice an orbit. And so as a consequence, it grows it once and again, once and again. It just keeps going round and around. So twice an orbit it encounters Dione. And that's going to give it this very rhythmic squeeze and squash. Pull, stretch and squash, stretch and squash, stretch and squash, and it heats up the interior. Enough heat is generated to melt the subsurface ices into liquid water. And so you build up liquid water just underneath the ice layers. As the subsurface melt makes its way to fissures in the crust, because remember, ice does not like being squeezed and stretched, and so eventually it's going to crack under the stress. The water is going to be higher pressure than the surrounding vacuum of space. This planet has virtually no atmosphere to speak of. And the stuff will just blam, geyser out. The composition of this is mostly water, because the atmosphere, what little there is of the atmosphere of Enceladus, is primarily water vapor with a little bit of nitrogen and methane. So this is primarily water ice geysering up. This ice geysers up. A lot of it kind of oozes out, too, and flows out along the surface like a kind of water lava. Remember, we're dealing with very, very cold planets. The temperature here is 75 degrees Kelvin. That's 75 degrees above absolute zero. So water under these conditions almost pretty much flash freezes the minute it hits the surface. So you get this kind of lava flow repaves the surface of Enceladus. But the gravity is really low, and the force of these fountains can be sufficient to actually kick some of that water entirely off the moon itself into orbit around Saturn. And when it does that, it's going to settle into a Saturn orbit and actually is feeding a very, very faint ring known as the E-ring. The rings of Saturn are named very unimaginative, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. The E-ring is a very, very faint outer ring. It's beyond the main ring system um, of, the, of the planet. So here's kind of a cartoon of what's going on. You get tidal heating of the planet. There's a rocky layer underneath the ices. That rock heats up due to the tidal heating and it begins to essentially give you a hot bottom. This heat begins to melt the ice, and you actually get circulation and convection in the ice. And eventually, you reach a point where you might have a pressurized pocket, where as the water begins to collect in there, the pressure goes up. As the pressure goes up, the melting point begins to change. And in fact, there may be a subsurface pocket where the temperature is exactly at the melting point of water, of water ice, about 273 Kelvin. So you build up reservoirs of ice underneath the subsurface layers, and then through a stress crack, you suddenly vent. And when you vent, you suddenly find yourself going from high pressure into essentially vacuum. And the thing just goes whoosh and sprays out as a tremendous geyser. 
So you build up this bright, brand new blue ice. That's why the tiger stripes look blue. They look like brand new, fresh blue ice. And some of the water vapor plus various little bits and particles of ice. This is very, very violent looking if you stood right next to them. Then goes up and you get this sort of what they call a cold geyser or is often referred to as an ice volcano, a cryo volcano. So this is, this is the present day picture for what's going on here. There could be other reasons, or maybe a little of extra, maybe a little radioactive or radiogenic heating going on here, but it's thought that tidal heating is the only kind of energy source we can get to actually provide for this. To put in perspective where Enceladus is, this is a cartoon of the planet. This is the uh, Saturn and its big ring system, A, B, C, D, the main ring system. There's the thin F ring, and then there's a very, very faint G ring out here. Mimas, Tethys, Dione, Rhea, Enceladus, some of those moons we just saw, orbit out here beyond the ring system. Mimas is here, Enceladus is right in the middle of the E-ring. In fact, it was known to be in the E-ring, and it was thought that, that Enceladus was, of course, the source of the ices in the E-ring. But the primary picture up until the Cassini images was that Enceladus would just every now and then get hit with a meteor, and that would knock ice off the surface, and that some of that material blasted off into space to form the E-ring. Now we know, in fact, that very likely it's because of the tidal heating with Dione out here that, in fact, what is happening is the E-ring is being continuously replenished with fresh ice and water vapor and ice particles coming out of those geysers. In fact, this is an absolutely spectacular picture, which was only taken just a few, few months ago. It's looking back now that the spacecraft was flying high above the ring plane, but looking back with the sun behind the spacecraft, so you get maximum reflection. And there is Enceladus embedded within the E-ring, but the beautiful details, you can now see the fountains of stuff spraying out into the E-ring. So the thing is basically sitting there fountaining away, building this E-ring around it in the orbit. And of course, every now and then, some of the stuff falls back onto Enceladus because it's plowing through its own stuff, it's spraying out, and so it builds up this layer of frost on the surface, and that's why all the entire surface is covered with fresh ice and why it's so bright. So Enceladus is an extremely dynamic system. It's a really fascinating system. They thought it was going to be something boring, but in fact, this is something definitely to watch. Here we're seeing a process of ongoing evolution of the system, in this case, tidal heating, slowly building up a brand new, very, very faint ring. It's not composed of big particles. It's basically composed of the little tiny ice bits that are being geysered up, plus any water vapor that then condenses on that stuff. So really quite spectacular. It's building up the E-ring sort of as we speak. So everyone thought the, the rings were kind of ancient structures and formed long ago, but it's really interesting to see a ring actually in formation. Well, let's move on now to Titan. This is the largest of the moons of Saturn. Um, it's got a radius of about 2,575 kilometers, so 5,000 kilometers in diameter all told. Density is kind of high. It's up about 1.9 grams per cc, which again is not quite up into the rocky moon zone. So it isn't going to be as dense as, say, Io or Europa, but it's going to be down in sort of that Ganymede-Callisto range. So we're really looking at a composite, an icy mantle built primarily on top of a rocky core. We're 10 times further away from the sun. It's really cold on the surface of Titan. Titan's surface temperature is 90 degrees Kelvin, 90 degrees above absolute zero. And as a consequence, even though it's small, it's only 5,000 kilometers in diameter, it is a little bit bigger than our moon, its gravity is sufficient to hang on to a heavy atmosphere. In fact, it is the only moon in the entire solar system that is cold enough to retain a heavy atmosphere. So remember, there's two, two pieces to holding on to an atmosphere. 
Either you have a lot of gravity when the atmosphere is hot, or you make that atmosphere really cold, and therefore lower the mean speeds of the molecules and make it easier for your weaker gravity to hang on to it. In fact, let's go back to this plot. We've seen this plot many times in this class before. This is the speed of, of various um, atoms and molecules, hydrogen, molecular hydrogen, helium, water, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide, and I've added this gray line now to that plot, this methane. So now we're out into the zone of the solar system where methane becomes one of the principal volatiles. So the main volatiles that we expect in the solar system are CO2, N2, methane, and water vapor. And I've left ammonia off of here because ammonia is not as important in the Saturn system. Ammonia is only going to become important much further out in the deeper solar system. Titan resides here. And you can see that its mass is big enough that it's able to hold on to at a temperature of just 90 degrees Kelvin on the surface that its gravity is strong enough to hold on to water vapor, if it was existing, methane, nitrogen, carbon dioxide, if there was any. But remember, we're out in the reduction chemistry zone. We're in the hydrogen chemistry zone. So I would expect in the, in the, in the zone of Titan, methane and probably nitrogen. It's not going to be much ammonia formation, but you might get nitrogen, maybe a bit of water, right? We see a lot of water on Enceladus, and a little bit of carbon dioxide, maybe. But that'd be a minority contributor because most of the oxygen is going to get sucked up into water. It's very water-rich in the zone. But notice the Titan is smaller than Mercury and only slightly bigger than the Moon, but neither the Moon nor Mercury can hold on to an atmosphere at all. And the reason is not is that even though Mercury's gravity is bigger, it's way, way hotter. So it is possible for a small mass object to hold on to an atmosphere, but it must be very, very cold. And in fact, you can sort of see a preview of what's coming up. We expect atmospheres also on Triton, the giant moon of Neptune, Eris, and Pluto, the two dwarf planets of the outer solar system so far. Those are actually going to be very much smaller than the moon, but because it's much colder out there, they can actually hold on to at least nitrogen and possibly even nitrogen methane atmospheres. Although none has held on to an atmosphere as strongly because of its gravity as Titan. Titan's atmosphere is actually approximately 80% nitrogen and about 3% methane, and then a mixture of other hydrocarbons, argon, and then you start getting some funny chemistry, you actually get ethane. Here's a very pretty picture looking at Titan. You can see, in fact, its surface is not visible in this visible light picture, and you can see this upper haze layer here. This cold, dense atmosphere is why it exists. The temperature is about 94 degrees Kelvin. That's 290 degrees below zero in Fahrenheit scale. And the pressure is huge. This is a heavy atmosphere. This has got more atmospheric pressure than the Earth's surface. It's 1.6 Earth atmospheres. And again, it's be simply because it's really, really cold. However, it's not an atmosphere you or I could breathe because it's not going to be oxygen in this atmosphere. It is mostly nitrogen. First of all, the temperature is way too cold. We freeze solid almost immediately. But the clouds on this planet that we see up here are, not, are combinations of methane and nitrogen ices. So I can make, make liquid nitrogen here and carry it around in the laboratory. We use it as a cooling fluid. Making solid nitrogen requires relatively low pressures and very, very cold temperatures. And you, in fact, get that up here in the atmosphere of, of, of Titan. Now, the other fun thing you get is at the very top layers of the atmosphere where ultraviolet light from the sun hits, when you have this strong nitrogen, hydrocarbon, methane atmosphere, you actually get a formation of nitric oxides due to ultraviolet chemistry, or you get basically hydrocarbon 
photochemical smog. So the same stuff that makes Los Angeles and large cities kind of brown and icky in the summertime is actually covers the entire planet in a thin layer outside of it in Titan's atmosphere because the ultraviolet radiation and the presence of hydrocarbons are abundant in that upper atmosphere for that hydrocarbon chemistry, photochemistry to go on. Just in the same way in a large city with lots of tailpipe exhaust pumping out hydrocarbons from, from gas combustion reacts with sunlight to form photochemical smog when it reacts with the nitrogen in the air. Now, Titan is a really strange place. It's got a huge atmosphere. It's very, very cold. It's below 100 degrees Kelvin, 290 degrees below zero absolute, 290 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. At these kinds of temperatures, methane is going to play the same role on Titan that water plays in the weather and, and atmosphere of the Earth. Remember, water, the Earth's atmosphere, is right at the boundary where liquid water can exist. And so we see water either as water vapor in the atmosphere, it rains out as liquid water into oceans and lakes, or it freezes into you know, frost on the car this morning, uh, snow and cold zones, uh, polar caps on the Earth. If you go into high pressure, but very, very low temperatures in a hydrogen-reducing atmosphere that's mostly nitrogen and methane, you're not going to get a lot of water vapor in that condition because it's way too cold. Water completely freezes out of the atmosphere here. But methane, at this kind of pressure, finds itself in kind of the triple point zone. It finds itself in a place where methane can be a liquid, methane can be a solid ice, and methane can be a gas. And so methane's going to play chemically and dynamically the same role that water is going to play. So because you're between the boiling and freezing points, you get gaseous methane in the atmosphere, but you also have the possibility of methane raining out as a liquid. Now, we know certainly that methane probably condenses into droplets in the atmosphere that forms a lot of the cloud layers that obscure the surface of Titan from our view, except when viewed in certain infrared windows that can look between the methane absorption bands. And Imaging the surface, as w not only from the Huygens probe as it lowered itself through the atmosphere a couple of years ago to land on the surface, but also using both um, cloud-penetrating radar on board the Cassini spacecraft, as well as special infrared cameras that can pierce through the smog layers, we can actually see beginnings of terrain on the surface of Titan that indicate that, in fact, liquid has flowed on the surface. We see drainage flows. We see drainage channels and branching flows. Um, the Huygens spacecraft, which parachuted through the atmosphere and took pictures as it landed, it was expected it was, there were two things that could possibly happen to it. One is it could splash into a methane or ethane lake. That, was, that would be one of the cool, cool possibilities. And in fact, it was designed to float just in case it hit that situation. Or it could just simply smack into rock or ice and break on impact. What happened was neither of the two. What it did on impact was it actually squelched into mud. But the mud was consisting of tiny grains of material, which turned out to be water ice grains, and methane semi-liquid. So what Huygens landed in was kind of a methane mud flat, where like on the Earth, I form mud with silicaceous rock and water forming kind of clay and guck. On Titan, you form that same kind of soil using ice grains, which are like grains of rock on the, in the cold temperatures of, of Titan, and methane liquid mixed together in kind of a sort of a stuff. 
So water is still frozen. Water is like grains of sand and is hard as rock under these temperatures. And so the sand that you see around the Tigan's Landing site is in fact water ice, not rock. Furthermore, in the last few months, Cassini has made a number of passes. In fact, one of Cassini's primary missions in visiting Saturn is not just to study the planet Saturn and take pictures of its moons, but a lot of its instruments have been designed to study in detail Titan, which is the only atmospheric moon in the solar system. And one of the things it carries is cloud-penetrating radar. Radar signature return off of a liquid surface is very different than the radar signature return off of rock. It's very, very distinctive. In the last few months, those radar passes have actually revealed the presence of large liquid lakes, presumably of methane or even possibly ethane. Here's those pictures here. In fact, could you kick the light out? The contrast is kind of poor on this, unfortunately. The, the projector today seems to be having its bulb go out, which is kind of unfortunate. You can see these dark regions here, and especially down here, this is sort of the general terrain, but now you can see these areas which are low-lying areas which are extremely smooth radar return. That's a liquid radar return signature. So the idea is, and we, we can't really confirm it for sure, there's going to be a lot more study going on, that what we're seeing is, is standing lakes of liquid methane. This is what people were looking for on Titan, and this is the first real evidence that these things might actually exist. This does not look like lava plains or anything else like that. Now, Titan's surface looks like it's very, very young. It's geologically active, but it's also got active weather, and so that's a big difference. One of the things that you get is you see very, very smooth, dark plains, which if we take the Cassini, or the, the Huygens uh, experience as it landed, it's a methane mud flap. One of the evidences for that is the spacecraft landed in the mud, it squelched in, so it made a kind of a soft landing. And then it had gas chromatographs on board, which were sampling the atmosphere composition as it came down. The minute it impacted, there was a sudden spike upward in the methane gas contribution around the spacecraft. The heat of the spacecraft was, was basically vaporizing the methane around it, made a little methane vapor plume. And it saw that, and all the onboard atmosphere sampling instruments suddenly spiked in the methane. So we knew we landed in some kind of methane liquid area. Um, there's very, very rugged highlands, and then really exciting are these sort of mud flats coming out of them. There are these drainage channels leading into them. So you can imagine these are highlands here. There may be precipitation. Here's some clouds, by the way. These are actually methane and nitrogen droplet clouds above the terrain there. This is a picture taken from the Huygens descent camera, and you can see these drainage channels. They look like drainage channels, drainage gullies on the Earth, except now we're doing these drainage channels in a mostly ice and a little bit of silicate soil, and what it's draining is probably liquid methane. This is really crazy stuff. There's a handful of impact basins around the planet, but they're mostly erased. This is a fairly young geologic surface, and it's got very, very active weather, and weathering, erosion, but erosion due to, there are winds, winds in a methane-nitrogen atmosphere, and erosion due to liquid methane. Here's what the surface of, of of Titan looks like. This is one of the last few photographs returned by the Huygens probe before it actually, the cold basically turned its electronics off. It only, and there were two things happened. One is it, it, it rotated, the planet rotated away from the Cassini spacecraft, so it lost uh, telemetry from it. But you can see looking out there, these are basically boulders here, or big rocks. There's a scale bar there at 15 centimeters and 6 centimeters, off into a plain covered with rock. Those rocks are probably water ice. 
That's a very likely composition of these things. And you can see the kind of mud flat, and then there's some kind of junk here. Part of that is, is light filtering down through the, the sky of Titan, and part of that junk is probably methane recondensing on the lens of the, of the cameras. So this is the only, uh, only moon we've ever landed on other than the Earth's moon, and it's an absolutely fascinating place, and people really, really want to go back here. And one of the, some of the crazier plans, and whether they'll ever get funded or not, one of them is to actually send a, a, a balloon-borne probe that can fly around the planet and descend in a sense, or people have got ideas of like self-inflating blimps and stuff. So there's so much interesting things to learn here. It's really getting people's imaginations going. Well, just to end, to sort of give a teaser for tomorrow's lecture, the rings of Saturn, of course, I've left unmentioned. Basically, what they are are billions of tiny chunks of rock and ice ranging from a few centimeters in size, kind of like little grains of rock or chickpea size, up to many, many meters, up basically sort of from beans up to the size of a house. Now, all of these beans and, and rocks of chunks of ice move on independent orbits all in the same plane around the equator of Saturn, and they all orbit around with different speeds. Various collisions among these, because an outer orbit's moving at a different speed than an inner orbit, they bounce and rub against each other, and that continually rubs the varnish off the surfaces and keeps the ices bright and shiny. We also know there is some replenishment of these ices, like, for example, out of the E-ring. But there's so much more going on in rings, they're a separate topic all by themselves, and that's the topic we're going to pick up tomorrow. So I'll see you all tomorrow.